In this very special episode of the Scottish Liberty Podcast, you can hear Anthony Samaroff discuss the universal basic income, with footage from independencelive.net and Libertarian Scott. Enjoy! Well, um, thank you everyone for coming up. Uh, it's a real privilege to be here to speak to you all. Thank you, Johnny, for uh, running this night. Thank you to the other speakers and fantastic music as well. So thank you. Okay, I'm going to give a little bit of hopefully um, mention some things that I haven't mentioned tonight and hopefully spark off some, some, some thoughts. So obviously, well, it might not be obvious, but the first time I heard of this basic, the idea of a basic income was maybe eight years ago. And since then, the idea has risen in popularity as evidenced by the fact that there's events being run. Whereas when I heard of it, it was like, whoa, shock, new idea. And the appeal is easy to see. For example, it would make sure that everyone's fundamental needs were met. And it would get rid of poverty traps where if people are earning more, they actually are taking home less or not not as or enough less than their total earnings would be that would discourage them from finding work. If whenever you earn money it's on top of your basic income, that would remove a poverty trap. It would allow people in low low paid jobs to supplement their income it would remunerate people who engage in voluntary work, uh, care work, child care, care for the elderly, that currently goes unpaid for. It would simplify the complex array of benefits and their administration costs. And it would significantly alleviate, we're told, stress, which is considered to be one of the biggest killers Uh, through related illnesses. It would perhaps encourage entrepreneurship because people could take risks. Um, And it would remove the stigma of people who are on benefits as being seen as parasites since everyone is getting the same treatment. Even if you're a high earner, you're getting your basic income. So so that's, that's the case for the basic income that as far as I've been able to glean from my research. And it does sound compelling. It would seem to yield some significant benefits um, over the current system. It would still probably have problems and abusers, but the argument is, of course, that those exist under the present system. So um, surely it would be open to less abuses than the present system. Now, the more that I have learned about economics, and I've been in a maybe a 10-year study of economics, I find the topic fascinating. And if you think it's boring, that's because, well, the textbooks are boring and the people who talk about it are boring. But it's actually very elegant. It's a very elegant subject. And I write a blog on economics. If you would like to learn more, I explain these concepts in a way that I think anyone would be interested in. I'd be happy to share that with you. Economics is not really about the apparent benefits of any policy. 
economics is about the knock-on benefits of any, co of any policy. Every policy provides incentives and disincentives, and those affect people's behaviour. And economics allows you to follow a trail of logic to anticipate what some of the unexpected consequences are. Now, I'm perhaps going to make myself not the most popular person in the room by talking about some of the potential pitfalls of the universal basic income system. But don't shoot the messenger, because good ideas are anti-fragile. If a good idea is challenged and it sustains itself, then you've just strengthened your view and created a better idea. And if it cannot sustain the challenge, then perhaps it wasn't such a good idea in the first place. So let's talk about some of the potential pitfalls of the universal basic income. And then I'm also going to talk about other policies that would increase standards of living, especially for the poor. So, I completely agree that many people will still do productive work even if they're, all their needs are, basic needs are taken care of and given money to do so. However, it's, well, it's worthy of keeping note that when you get a job, when someone pays you for something, they're paying you for work that is of service to others. Otherwise, they wouldn't bother paying you. Obviously, you're doing something for someone that they value. That's why they give you a wage. A lot of the work that might be done under a universal basic income scheme may have some value, but it may not be the full value that paid work provides to other members of society. And what you are go going to have, to some degree, however large or small you think that degree is, is a trade-off between people who are pursuing their personal interests and hobbies, which is very worthy, and people who are working directly, doing the kinds of things that people who aren't doing those things are enjoying the benefit of, and those people will have to admit lower living standards, even though they are doing the heavy lifting. It's worth, benefit, it's worth mentioning that we all benefit from the work that people did before we were even born, above and over and above what they consumed. People produced more than they consumed. And they built our bridges and our railways and our roads and our machines that, that create all the lovely conveniences they enjoyed. They created all the great literature. They created all the scientific advancements. And I fear that a lot of that work we might see a knock-on effect of less of it getting done. So, you know, the market transactions select for producers that are, are, are providing services in demand, whereas a basic income doesn't necessarily summarize that point. Okay. Now, uh, uh, if you want to look sorry, at some of the figures behind this, if we come back to one of the, 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 the virtues of the, the basic income, which is that it gets rid of poverty traps. 
But you have a corollary to that, which is if you're to pay for this basic income, when people do start earning, you will have to see a huge percent of that earning being taxed to pay for it. Because, you know, you, if you're giving out people a ten, 8 or 10 or 12 or 16,000 pounds, you, you know, you might not get people who are surgeons or want, wanting to work long hours only to be taxed 70, 80, 90% as standard. And if we just want to look at some of the figures behind that, there's 64. 64.1 million people in the UK. Um, at £8,000 a year, which I think is pretty much the lowest that someone could survive on, maybe you could scrape by on, on seven or six, but to have a comfortable standard of living, 8000 you're still talking about £513 billion a year nationwide. So to put that in context, our total spending this year is projected at 781.784.1 billion. So that's two-thirds of what we're spending. Now, that's not the end of the story because, of course, you would be able to replace the current benefit system, but that only amounts to 270 billion. So that's maybe half the price of this scheme. So you do need to make up that money some way. Now, um, Sean said something about, you know, taxing corporations and um, that rather than individuals. And he, he did say that that's implausible. But you should know that a tax on corporations is a tax on individuals because the corporation has to account for that spending. And there's three ways they can do it. One way is to raise the price of products, so you and I pay. Another way is to not take so many risks, not employ more people, so they don't expand as much. The pay workers might not get uh, pay rises, uh, and, and the, the economy might not grow as much. And the third way is, of course, the shareholders go away with less, which you know some of you may well be in favour of. It seems like they just put in the capital. But, and, and so they're, they're, they're gaining money for doing little. But what do they do with that money once they take it out? They're going to invest it in other businesses and machines and factories that create things, pushing down the cost of things, so we all benefit from getting cheaper products and a higher standard of living. So there is a, I'm not saying that that's the end of the story, but I'm just saying every policy has a trade-off. So it's not like when you tax corporations, that money comes out of thin air. It's coming out of other places in the economy, which might be doing productive work. So, um, and also, big corporations have the lawyers and accountants and lobbyists to avoid it, whereas small corp companies don't. And then when you factor in the fact that you and I pay tax on our income, but a corporation pays tax on what's left after it's done all its spending. So that encourages them to make a board meeting uh, in Hawaii, uh, put the cars through the business. It creates waste. That's why when you go to some of these corporations, they have lavish 
um, lobbies with fountains and gold stairs because all of that is tax deductible. And most corporations are only running on a profit margin of 8 to 10, 12%. So you can't tax them indefinitely. Everything has a trade-off. The other thing is, if you just put that money in people's hands, right, that can very easily cause price inflation. So you just give money to everyone. They've got more money in their pockets. What's the first thing that happens? The shops put up the prices. Because the, the, money, I don't, the understanding of what money is is not very well understood. Money is like a token that is equivalent to the number of goods and services in an economy. You can, they're interchangeable. That's why we spend our money on goods and services. If the amount of money in the society goes up, but the number of goods and services stays the same, the money is worth less. And you might even say it might become worthless. So, let me see. So, Okay. Finally, there's a subset of economics called public choice theory. It all sounds very boring, but it's actually all very interesting. This monitors the way that governments have incentives, the same way that you and I have incentives. And many of the incentives are to um, give money to certain groups to get votes uh, or lobbying money for corporations and things like that. I fear that with the institution of a, a basic income, an election point will always be increase the basic income because that's something that everyone will benefit for. So will always be a winner. And there's only so far that you can increase it before it keeps eking and eking and eking and eking away at um, the, the voluntary side of the, the economy. So... These are, these are some of the, the most important arguments to consider against the basic income. And the question that is, of course, left is, well, what else can we do? What can we do to, say, make this cheaper? What can we do to, bet, to tackle poverty and all the problems that we want a basic income to alleviate? And I want to talk about some solutions. I, I, I hope that I'm not running too short of time because I realize I've been speaking for some time. So... Perhaps instead, perhaps we're asking the wrong question, right? Instead of asking, what do we do about poverty? To me, what's interesting is, why is it after 250 years of unprecedented economic growth, we still have any poverty to the degree that we have, okay? For all of human history, until the agricultural revolution that we have records of, human beings lived on the equivalent of $3 a day. Okay? And if you look at the graphs of how much people live on, it shot up in the late 1700s and has been going up ever since. So, if you look at... Um, sorry, I'm just looking at my figures here. Many, if between 1870 and 1970, the average number of hours that a person worked fell from 57 hours to 42 hours. 
That's 15 hours less on average. That is amazing, right? It's gone down a little bit since then, but not to the same degree. Why is that? We have internet. We, I got a laptop for uh, a notebook for £140 that has sound recording software on it, a scientific calculator, everything you can imagine, right? Any one of these inventions might have cost £140 a few decades ago, right? In a sense, for the most comfortable generation, we've got hoovers, we've got uh, dishwashers, we've got washing machines. Surely, we should be able to have seen a 15-hour reduction in the average work week again since 1970. So, I want to talk about the three or four reasons why the, the cost of living is so high. The first one is, and I've got a, 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 an example of this, right? We tend to see inflation as just part of life, right? The goods in the shops go down. But between 1700 and 1913 in America, the price of everything went down 20%. Does anyone know what happened in 1913 that stopped this trend? Right. America got the Federal Reserve, their central bank, that had the authority to print money at will. Right? Remember what I said earlier on about when the amount of money in the economy goes up, the price of goods and services goes up. Since then, the value of the dollar has gone down by 96%. Just think about that. Imagine if your money could buy 96% more than it does now. We have a similar economy to America. The figures might not be exactly the same, but it can hardly be understated the amount that printing money has damaged our standards of living. Yes, the wages will go up to match that gradually, but who gets the money first? The rich bankers, the favours handed out by government. They spend the money when it's at its high value, and by the time you and I get it, the value of the money has gone down and the goods are more expensive. So printing money, number one. Number two, what's the most expensive thing that you will ever buy in your life? Ah, uh, you would think that, wouldn't you? Actually, it's government. The average person in Great Britain spends 22 years working for the government. So I'll just let you draw the conclusions about how much of a knockoff that has on living standards. 22 years. That means those people have less money to buy on goods and services that help other people get into productive work. But I want to come back to housing because it is my favourite topic. <laughs> well, they're all my favourite topic, but I do love talking about housing because it is a crock what, what, what's happening with houses, right? Anyone take a guess how much price, house, house, price houses? I'm starting to enjoy myself now, okay. How, how, I mean, I've always been enjoying myself, but now that I'm a little bit ne less nervous. How much did house prices go up between 1971 and 2011? How much? Gee, okay, you're going to get a shock here. 4,255% between... I'm not fucking kidding you. 
Over 50% of young people believe they will never own a house. You used to be able to budget for a house with one person working, right? Why are house prices so high? Well, because under the Tories, uh, uh, under John Major, house prices started falling. Everyone went batshit, and it became the golden rule, thou shalt not let house prices fall. Because there's a nine-to-one ratio of people who own houses to people looking for houses at any one time. So the golden rule is for government, do anything you can to keep house prices up. Okay, so regulations and restrictions on land use and buildings, planning and zoning laws, building codes, house height restrictions, even outside the city centre. All of these restrict the supply of, house price, of housing and push the house pricing up. Landlord registration, stamp duty, HMO licensing, which has left so many houses underoccupied while other people cannot afford housing, right? Uh, unrelated people can't share a flat together. All of these restrict the supply of housing. And what happens when supply is restricted? Prices go up. When you add to that the money printing that I've mentioned and even help to buy schemes, they sound good on the face of it, let's help people buy houses, but that drives more money into the housing market, pushing the prices up. Then people don't want to save because the interest rates are low. So what do they do? They invest, they, they pummel it into the housing market and the house prices stay high. So we really need a reality check on our government policies towards housing. Which, because imagine, just forget the figure for 4,000 and something percent. Just imagine house prices were half. Just imagine they were a third or a quarter. How much more, how much less would you have to pay on your rent? How much easier, I've just got two minutes, so how much easier would it be to look after the poor? There was a scheme in, in, in the States where someone put up lots of low-cost housing for like $4,000. The government came in and shut them down. So, the, so... <clears throat> I just want to mention something else about free trade. We are currently not allowed to import products from some of the poorest countries in the world. That's terrible for them because we can't send them our money. And it's terrible for us because poor people have to admit a lower standard of living. It is inhumane not to allow us to import goods from the poorest countries in the world. It's sick. So, you don't have to agree or disagree with a basic income to see the sense of the economic policies which I advocate as a member of the Scottish Libertarian Party. But if you are for the basic income and you want to make it affordable, my policies would still be a great way to make that scheme more affordable. Thank you so much. Can you elaborate a little bit on how you know, what your vision is to, you know, because what I see is when people have advocated for the basic income, they're looking at how do you give purpose to people who maybe don't have an incentive, don't have a purpose in life there. So, right. so how, how, can, how, can you, how can the Libertarian Party policies push, you know, give hope to, to people and give opportunity and purpose to, to people like that? Well, 
Who might otherwise benefit from the basic income, yeah. Well, you have to have a situation where it's lucrative for, in my opinion, for employers to train workers, right? At the moment, there's lots of people who don't have any skills and they can't get a good job because of that. But it's very, very difficult to hire and employ people and there needs to be minimum wage exemptions for people who are training their staff. Because once you've got those skills, you're completely independent. You can go and take those skills anywhere you want. We need to look at a society that cultivates individuals and helps them create options for themselves. That creates a system of interdependence. And when you look at the welfareist model, of helping the poor I am very very concerned that what you are doing is you are putting people in a position of permanently having to rely on unreliable government to give them their income we need to have a society including education reforms that cultivates individuals so they can get skills and become the masters of their own destiny and that, I hope that's a satisfactory answer on that question Hi, Ben. Hi, yeah. Um, I've got a couple of questions. Uh, these aren't like gotcha questions because I, yeah, I might no, have please, the answer. Uh, it's entirely possible that you'll answer my question. I'll be like, oh, basically, some shite and I'll piss off. Um, but <laughs> let's hope not, eh? It's embarrassing. Um, right, a couple of questions about uh, inflation that you mentioned earlier, yeah. just because that's like really common topic that comes up. So the first one was about quantitative easing. Mm -hmm. um, and if you print loads and loads and loads of money, the, the value of money goes down. And I, I totally get that. Um, but the UK is one of the most unequal countries in the world. Uh, the homes in the southeast of England have got 83% more wealth than those in Scotland. Yes. So if we just redistributed wealth more equitably through a progressive tax system, we wouldn't be adding more money into the economy. And so, in your view, sort of related to that is the quantitative yes. easing and printing yes. money. If you put it in at the top, you're right, it's higher value when it hits the top. But would a basic income not be, even if you funded it by printing money, be do quantitative easing at the bottom level so that it's the, when it's the most value to the poorest? And yeah, and the final bit is if incomes do go up in areas, yes. um, then demand for goods would go up. And kind of right, okay. economics okay. 101 is supply goes up and price goes down. So how can you yes. address those questions? Really yes, thank you, Ben. Those are, e those are excellent questions. And I, I fear... I can't give a comprehensive answer, but I'd love to continue speaking to you about them. So first of all, it's a great thought, you know, give people the money at the bottom, print it and give it to the people in the money at the bottom. The thing is, you're going to get price inflation much faster that way. I'm not for giving it to the people at the top, but because they've got it in their hands, it's very easy to do a quick fix and just hike the prices up immediately in the shops, right? Now, so, so you... you and the other problem with it is you're not giving those people the means, right? What you're doing when you re redistribute the wealth is you go to the deep end of the swimming pool, then you've got some bureaucracy over here, you spill some of it in the way, you, get, you put it in the shallow end, right? Those people go out and spend it in the shops, the money flows back to the rich people who had it in the first place. So what you need to do is even out, the swimming pool. You need to give these poor people capital. And I don't just mean machines and factories. I mean skills. So that the money doesn't just all flow to the 1% when they go to the shops and spend it. You need to build up the personal capital of the poor so that they can become creators themselves and then we have a more equal society. I hope that's helpful to you. Thank you.